Well, good morning. I'm going to welcome you again to Central Presbyterian Church, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Since Easter, we've been studying the letter to the Hebrews, and we've talked before that this is more of a sermon that's written down by a pastor. We're not sure who's written it, but it's, it's a sermon that's written to a group of Christians that are living in Rome, and they are Christians with a Jewish background. And this pastor has been writing to them that Jesus is greater than anyone or anything that they could live for. He's writing it to this group of Christians who are thinking about giving up on the Christian faith. They're thinking about returning to their roots of Judaism because living for Jesus is hard. It's challenging, and some of them have have been challenged to, to give up everything that they have. Some of them have had their property confiscated. We'll study that a little bit later in the letter. Some of them have friends who have been living for Jesus who've lost their lives at this point. It's hard to live for Jesus in their day, in their culture. And the pastor is saying, Jesus is better. He's greater than anyone or anything that you could be living for, even though it's hard, it's challenging right now. He had just been explaining to them that Jesus is the greater high priest. His priesthood is worth pondering even more, but he, and he has more to say about it, but before he does, he turns to something more sober. He turns to a warning. He turns to one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament. It's, it's a passage that sometimes when pastors are preaching through the book of Hebrews, they just skip over this next passage. It's a part where pastors fear even to tread. It's, it's a sober, sober warning, but he warns these people because he loves them. He cares for them. He warns because he loves. My grandfather was a chief of police. And whenever you drove to my grandfather's house and you left his house in your car, he always warned you. It didn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter how many times you had driven away from his house. He always warned you with this same warning, don't cross that highway every single time. There was a a, a super busy four-lane highway that you had to to go across in some way to leave his house, but because he had been the chief of police for a long time, he'd seen so many accidents at that intersection. He'd seen a lot of people killed at that intersection. So every time anyone drove away from his house, it doesn't matter who the driver was, he always warned, don't cross that highway. He would say, take a right, go down, go down and, and turn around in that other place. I mean, a thousand times he told me that, told my father that, told my mother that, told all of his children that. The pastor here warns, don't turn from God's word. Cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. There's a danger in not listening to him. Can you hear the love in his voice? Don't turn from Jesus. You're in peril if you do. Let's pray and give our attention to this loving warning from this pastor. Lord, we ask that you would give us soft hearts here. Open our eyes, open our ears, that we would behold Jesus. And we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Help us to hear, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. 
about this, about Jesus' high priesthood. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that, is, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the living and abiding Word of God. Lord, you have the words of life. <clears throat> There's a story told of Franklin Roosevelt, who often endured long receiving lines at parties at the White House. And maybe on this occasion, FDR needed to entertain himself. I'm not sure. Maybe he was bored. But he complained that no one really paid attention to what was said in these receiving lines. And so one day, he decided during a reception to try an experiment. To each person who passed down the receiving line and shook his hand, he murmured, I murdered my grandmother this morning. <clears throat> Just to see if anyone would respond. And so the guests, as they walked down the line, sure enough, they shook his hand and people responded with things like, marvelous, Mr. President, keep up the good work. Others said, Mr. President, we are so proud of you. God bless you, sir. But there was one guest. He was near the end of the line. It was the ambassador from Bolivia, actually. And he listened. He actually heard what the president said. And the president murmured, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And the ambassador from Bolivia kind of took a step back, looked at the president, and then leaned in and whispered, I'm sure she must have had it coming. <laughs> are you listening? I mean, are you really 
listening. We had a pastor, an interim pastor here, used to say that quite often. Are you listening, remember? Are you really listening? There's a way, there's a, there's a temptation to just go through the motions in our faith, to just mouth the words and not really listen to what God's word is saying to us. And the pastor wants us to know here, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to our souls to just go through the motions without listening to what God is saying to us, particularly to people with a Jewish or Hebrew background, to, to listen, as the, as the pastor says here, to listen or to hear in Hebrew is closely related to the word obey. To listen, to genuinely hear might even include the idea of obey. So the pastor here comes to this group in verse 11 and he calls them to listen in a renewed way, to listen in in a deeper way because they had grown dull. He says they're sluggish of hearing. He had lots to tell them. He had lots more to tell them, but they had stopped listening, he says, and they were in danger. And I think he would say the same to us, we who are familiar with God's word. We who hear it week in and week out, we who read it, and yet sometimes it's become old hat, and we've stopped listening. I have two points for us this morning from this text. What's the danger of not listening? And second, how do we not end up in danger? First, what's the danger of not listening to God's word. Well, verse 11, the pastor says he has lots to teach them about Jesus as high priest, and he's going to come back to it in chapter 7, but he takes a little side stop here because they weren't hearing him. It leads us to this first danger of not listening, and the first danger is this. It's a regression to childishness. Get verse 12. He says they should be teachers by this point of their walk with Jesus. They'd learned enough about God's word, but they needed someone to teach them the basic principles of the oracles of God. They needed someone to go over with them again the ABCs of the gospel again. They needed milk, he said, not, not solid food because they were like children and not in the, in the good way. They weren't childlike in the way Jesus wanted us to become childlike in the kingdom. Now, when he says that they are becoming childlike or they needed to to move on from the basics of the kingdom, he's not talking about leaving the basics of the gospel behind. He enumerates those basics of the gospel in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. He talks about repentance and faith. He talks about becoming a part of the fellowship of the church. That's what laying on of hands means, becoming part of the family of God, being received in the laying on of hands in the church family. He talks about washings. That's the the rite of baptism, especially coming from Jewish backgrounds. He talks about the the hope of the end, of resurrection and the eternal judgment, the basics of the faith. He's not talking about leaving that all behind, but rather those things are the foundation of the life of a disciple. When you're building a house, you don't relay a foundation multiple times, do you? You lay a foundation once and then the house is built upon the top of it. So in the life of a disciple, the foundation is laid and the presumption is the life of a disciple is one of learning, one of growing on top of it. But they weren't growing. They were stuck at this foundational level, just going over the basics back one after the other, over and over and over again, but never growing, never progressing as a disciple. They were stuck, he's saying. 
It's like someone would say, I love my wife, but I really don't care to know anything about her. Don't you begin to think, hmm, I really care. I wonder if you really love your wife. Well, I, I, I said I loved her when I, when I married her, and, and I, I was just excited to get to the wedding. But now that we've been married for a while, I really don't need to know anything about her, really, do I? You really begin to wonder, are, I have doubts, serious doubts about your relationship. Don't we wonder? The pastor's saying something similar about a follower of Jesus. If we, if we say we love Jesus, don't we want to press in to know him more? Don't we want to press in and have a, a growing relationship with Christ just like we want to have growing relationships with the people who are close to us? That's the foundation of a Christian life. We grow. We want to know more and more. We, we build. We want to grow deeper with Jesus. We want to grow broader with Jesus. That's, that's what it's like to be a disciple. But those who won't listen are in danger of regressing into childishness. They don't want to know, don't, don't want to grow, don't want to grow up into Christ as the Apostle Paul talks about in other places. But they're happy, verse 13, of being unskilled in the word of righteousness, of being like children. In other words, they're not practicing what they know. There's, they're, what they know isn't informing how they live their lives. There's, there's a disconnect between what they've learned and how they live. They're not progressing on into maturity then learning discernment to distinguish truth from error, good from evil. They're refusing to listen, leaves them trapped in childishness with a disconnect between what they've been taught and how they live their lives. Now, practically what that means is that these Christians have been left like little roving bands of pack animals living under the pressure of the peer group. It's basically they're caught according to the herd of the culture. They kind of live just like the world around them, just going along to get along. But that's not why people of God have been saved and separated out to live like the people of God. We've been saved from our slavery to sin so that we don't just look like the world around us. The Lord has saved us by the blood of his cross and the power of his resurrection to free us from our slavery to sin so that we are his people. And yet sometimes we regress into childishness and we're content to just find ourselves just falling to the pressure to conform to whatever's cool right now to compromise and, and just live just like the world with the value of life and, and how the world, the world wants to care for the refugee or the poor or just fall in line so that we don't stick out. We fail to, we, we're unskilled in the word of righteousness so that we live just like the world around us so that we don't stick out. That's what the apostle Paul, the, the, the writer here is saying. Maybe it's Paul, we don't know. That we, the writer is saying here, People who are thinking about turning back, turning away from Jesus because living for Christ in that culture was so hard. Following Jesus was so hard. Can you identify with that? It's hard to follow Jesus in our world sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to be willing to say, I'm gonna stand for Christ here and I'm gonna stand out from the crowd. And it might cost me something, it's hard sometimes but the the pastor would say but don't shrink back because Jesus is greater 
Who Jesus is is greater than whatever, whatever affection you get from living in the pack animal crowd of the world. Jesus is better. Jesus is more beautiful. It even goes down to the level of the, the, the herd of the world who want us to conform to its character. And it, it, it's subtle in, in, in our day that the world would want us to conform to the way that the world interacts with itself, the way that we interact with each other. But, but Jesus seeks to form his character among us. Jesus seeks to form us to have people who live with the character of the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And yet sometimes we want to reject that and think, well, you know, if I really want to get ahead in this life, sometimes it's even subtle to say this. If I want to pursue the things of God in this world, sometimes I have to take a more forceful hand because I'm not sure that the fruit of the Spirit work in our day. I'm not sure that being kind and gentle actually work. I've got to fight fire with fire if we're going to get ahead. But that's, that's regression to childishness. It's childishness to say the power of God has no ability to change me. The power of God can't work in our culture, but in Rome's culture it could work. In the world when Jesus spoke it, when the word of God spoke it, it worked. It can work no less in our day. It's a regression to childishness to say the word of God can't work now. God would shape us to be his people with the character of Christ in our world according to the fruit of the spirit. Even if it seems weak, even if it seems ineffective because the character of Christ turned the world upside down. And he would shape us to be that kind of people too. He would shape us to be that kind of people too. Being skilled in the word of righteousness. Connecting what we know to how we live. It's dangerous not to listen to the word of God. But it's also dangerous because not listening brings the danger of being deceived about spiritual life. The pastor lays out this next danger and calls us to press on to maturity even when some have a faith that is revealed to be false. These next verses, verses four to six, are really difficult and they're challenging. At first blush, it may sound like a genuine believer might lose their salvation. The words sure sound like that, but not, not quite so fast. When we examine them carefully, not quite so fast. This, here's a place to lay hold of one of those bedrock Reformation principles. And the principle is this. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. And what that means is never come to a conclusion in one passage that is at odds with other clearer passages of Scripture. Because Scripture doesn't... doesn't um, doesn't contradict itself. For example, John chapter 10, Jesus said this, I give my sheep eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me and no one is able to snatch them from my father's hand. No one can snatch his children from his hand, Jesus says. No one. We can't even snatch ourselves from his hand. No one, Jesus says. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we read it in our, in our confession time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Those are crystal clear. Or as some people have put it, theologically they've said this, once saved, always saved. Have you ever heard that before? That's a true statement. That's a very good, solid, biblical statement. Once saved, always saved. It's completely true. But I think what this text would say to us is this, once saved, always saved. Make sure that we know Jesus. Once saved, always saved. Hear the warning. Make sure that we are clinging to Christ and not just hanging around all the benefits of the covenant people of God. There's a possibility to live in around the church in such a way that it offers a form of Christianity that can be mistaken for the real thing, but it really isn't. The warning here is that we would press on and cling to Jesus, not just live on the outsides and the outskirts of of the benefits of the kingdom of God while not actually embracing Jesus himself. Once saved, always saved, absolutely. But the warning would say, make sure that you know Jesus. Make sure that you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus. Look at how he describes it in verse 4. He describes these people in this way, being enlightened as the word of God does. It, it lights our path, but sometimes the, the light can remain on the outside rather than on the inside of our hearts. He describes it as a, a sharing in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit can just be like a, a traveling companion, but not coming inside. And he remains outside of us and our, our hearts does not become his home. Or tasting of the heavenly gift, having tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age, of, age to come, tasted but not ingested. you know the difference? I'll illustrate it this way. <clears throat> I've had the privilege of attending a Burns Night dinner on a few occasions. And for those of you who don't know what a Burns Night is, it's January 25th each year, and it's a night to celebrate Robert Burns, the Scottish poet. And a Burns night is uh, usually when uh, friends come together and uh, most often you, you bring a Robert Burns poem and you share, you, you read that poem, you talk about it, something you like about the Robert Burns poem. And sometimes each person who comes brings their favorite bottle of scotch to the Robert Burns night and everybody tastes everybody else's favorite bottle of scotch. And, um, and you, you, you might have a, a little tasting notes here, and you can describe what you taste when you taste someone else's bottle of scotch. I, this one tastes of vanilla and, and oak and leather and smoky, and this other one is more medicinal and herby and whatnot. And so this group that I often do a, a burn night with has 15, maybe 20 guys in it. And so, as you can imagine, coming to this Burns night and everybody bring in their favorite bottle, you got 15, 20 scotches out there and tasting them, it could get dangerous really quickly, you know? So what do you do? Well, what you do is you take a sip of the scotch and you roll it around in your mouth. You get all the flavors all around, but you don't swallow it. You don't ingest it. There's a little dump bucket there so you, so you can see straight after you taste your fourth scotch. You taste it, you get all the flavors, you write down what you taste, but you don't ingest it. You taste it and then you spit it out. That's a little bit like what this pastor is describing here. There's a risk of taking God's word in and rolling it around your mouth, rolling it around your life, 
but not ingesting it, not taking it in. Rolling the gospel of Jesus and being intrigued by all those flavors of forgiveness. Being intrigued by the idea of of being adopted by the free grace of God. That's incredible. I could be a child of the living God. Being intrigued in the flavor of forgiveness, all of my sin could be wiped away. That's, that's amazing. And kind of walking around with that for a little while. But after a year or two, you, if you never really ingested it, never really took it into your heart, never really thought, well, if that's true, that means that my life and my will has to be in submission to Jesus If he's really the Lord, that means that he determines how I live my life, not not me living my life the way I want to. I can't just go on living how I've always lived. Something has to be different. There's, There's a way of tasting the goodness of God, but it never gets into your heart. It never changes you from the inside out. There's no there's no transformation. That's tasting of it, but it's never ingested. It rolls around in your mouth, but it never gets in your heart that's what the pastor's talking about here do you notice what he does not say in those verses do you notice what's missing the pastor's describing these folks he never says that they believed never he never says anything about faith he never says anything about them trusting in jesus he never says that they were saved from their sins he never it's, it's, it's almost like he's going out of his way to describe people who walk the edges of the people of God and not say that they were saved. These are folks who in some ways appeared like they may have been Christians, but they've fallen away because they never were Christians. It's like they, in verse 6, they've taken their place alongside those who mocked Jesus as he he was crucified. They examined him. They thought about who he is, his claims to be the savior of sinners, the king, the one whom God sent as the Messiah. They examined his claims and said, nope. And they become those who now mock him and scorn him, hold him up to contempt because Jesus, you're not sufficient for my needs. You're not sufficient to save me from my sin. You're not sufficient as one to be worshipped and in whom to place all of my hope and my trust as the crucified Lord and the only hope of salvation for sinners like me. It's describing people who have enjoyed the blessing of the reign of God's people, the, the rain of the blessing of God falling down on them, but the only fruit is, that is produced after time is the, the fruit of the curse. It's thorns and thistles. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's describing people who have received all of these blessings and won't turn to Christ as the crucified Savior and only remedy for our sin. It's describing people who may want God, but reject Jesus. It's describing a people who, in a sad way, might even want a Christ-less Christianity. Want all the trappings and trimmings of a religion, but no real belief. On this passage, Frank Barker who planted Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, one of the flagship churches in the PCA, he used to say this, a faith that fails at the finish was faulty 
from the start. A faith that fails at the finish was faulty from the start. And that warning is given so that we hear that call to cling to Jesus through our whole lives, all the way down and all the way through, not coasting to the finish line in life, not, 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 not thinking, I'm just going to play around with Jesus a little bit here, a little bit there. I, I, you know, I, I dabbled with Jesus way back when, but you know what? I've outgrown him. I've, I've kind of progressed beyond that. Not that but cling to Jesus all of life because only the crucified Jesus for all of our sin, only that crucified and risen Jesus can save us. Don't reject him because you think you've outgrown him. Don't reject him because you think, I don't really have need of that kind of crucified savior anymore. I'm I'm not that bad of a person. Don't reject him because you think I've done too many bad things. I'm too bad for him. Don't reject Jesus because Jesus is the only sufficient savior for sinners like us. But cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus because he has been given by our heavenly father as a sufficient savior for all of our sin. No matter who you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus is sufficient. Now it could be that you're here this morning and you have a really tender conscience, and you hear this, and you're struggling, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, is this me? Is this describing me? I'm struggling with this sin. Maybe I'm even backsliding in my life. Is, Is this me? Listen to me very carefully. If you hear this warning, and you think, oh no, is this me? The very fact that you're worried about it lets you know this isn't you. (laughs) The very fact that you hear this and you think, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be that. But I want Jesus. I want you. The fact that you're worried about it says, this isn't you. This is describing someone who says, I don't care about Jesus. I don't want to repent. None of that matters to me anymore. Cling to Jesus. If you're worried about it, if you, if you feel conviction this morning, cling to Jesus as your high priest because he forgives you because his blood has paid it all. Cling to Christ this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you're worried about your kids. Maybe you're worried about your grandkids. Are you worried about the children of our church? Keep praying for them. Keep coming to the throne of grace for them because we have a God who makes and keeps covenant promises to generation after generation. Pray and plead with the Lord on behalf of our children and our grandchildren and the children of our church because, hear me now, their story isn't over. Keep praying for them. We're going to look at this more in depth next week when we look at verses 13 to 20. We pray because our God makes and keeps promises. He made a promise to Abraham and those promises are our anchor and those promises including promises to our kids provide the anchor for anxious souls including anxious parents and grandparents. Keep praying and commit your children and your grandchildren and the children of our church to the Lord and don't you dare give up on them. Don't you dare give up on them because we have a God who makes and keeps promises. 
Keep praying for your wayward children again and again and again because we know that our God is faithful. The warnings, the warnings of Scripture are there to wake us up, to wake us up to the danger to our souls. The question for us is, are we listening? Are we listening? Listen and cling to Jesus. Really quickly, how do we not end up like these people? <laughs> how do we not end up like those who won't listen? How do, we, how do we take refuge in verse nine? The pastor says, oh, for you, beloved, I feel sure of better things, things of salvation. Two hints here. Look back at verse one. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. That go on to maturity is a passive verb. And that passive verb means that someone else is acting on you. Someone else is the power in you to cause you to go on. And the, the grammar scholars tell us that this is a divine passage, a divine passive, which means God is the one who is acting. God is the one who is working in you to cause you to go on. It, it, a wooden translation would mean, it would say that let us be carried on to maturity. So place, your arm, place yourself in the arms of God, the one who carries you. Ask, Lord, if I'm going to persevere in this life, you're going to have to be the one who preserves me. If I'm going to keep going, Lord, you're going to have to be the one who carries me. If I'm going to make it to maturity, Lord, you're going to have to be the one who helps me get there. I can't make it by myself, Lord. So please, if you want me into maturity, you're going to have to take me there. That has to be your plea. That has to be your prayer. And he preserves us toward what? Verse 11, for that full assurance of hope. That full assurance of hope until the end. When the Bible talks about hope, it doesn't mean something like, I hope the weather is nice to, for our Memorial Day party tomorrow. It doesn't mean, I'm not certain it will be, but I sure hope it will. That's not the way the Bible talks about hope. When the Bible talks about hope, it means a future that is so certain that I live now in light of what the future brings. It means, in other words, that I see with eyes of faith what is hard to see with my earthly eyes right now. It means the pastor wants us to have this full assurance of hope to the end that what I see with my eyes of faith is a Jesus who was crucified and raised and, 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 and he was, he's risen to the, to, uh, to, from the dead. He's reigning from heaven and he's returning. And that is so certain. The victory of Jesus is so certain that it gives me power to walk through my trial right now. I can't see my way through it. I can't see how I'm going to stand in this trial yet another day. I can't figure it out. My faith is too weak. I don't have any strength left. I don't know how I'm going to make it another day. With my earthly eyes, it makes no sense. I'm not going to make it. But with my eyes of faith, I see that that Jesus who won the victory is standing here with me. That Jesus who is reigning from heaven is right here in me to enable me to stand up. I'm not going to make it, but somehow, some way, that Jesus is going to make a way. That's 
how we're going to make it. That's what we pray. Lord, you're going to have to carry me into that place because I can't see my way through it. What this pastor would say to you and to me, these folks who are maybe at the end of their rope and you maybe who are at the end of your rope, he would say to you and me when we're looking at our strength and say, I don't have any left, he would say, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking in the wrong spot. Stop talking about how big your problems are. And start telling your problems how big your Jesus is. That's what he would say. Stop freaking out about how big and how huge and how scary all our problems are and start telling all those problems how much bigger our Jesus is, the Jesus who is risen from the dead and who reigns from the heavens and who is coming back to make everything new and he is coming to claim us for his own. That's how we're going to make it. That's how we're not going to be trapped in that danger. Because Jesus is a strong Savior. And he's come for sinners like us. And all we have to do is cling to him because he is clinging to us. Listen to him. And he will save you. And he will never fail you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes of faith And help us to see beyond these earthly eyes that are so captivated by our trials and our problems and how hard it is to follow after you sometimes. Lord, lift up our heads that we might see this King of glory who comes. Lift up our eyes to see the risen and reigning one and give us strength when we are weak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.